everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here to talk about things that we should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about upcoming Princess Bride table read that we are unreasonably excited about. Yeah, it'll be over by the time this episode goes up, but tonight we're super excited uh, to support Wisconsin Democrats. The cast of The Princess Bride is doing a table read of the movie, and they got pretty much everyone back uh, who is still alive anyway. They have Josh Gad filling in for Fezzik. And Rob Reiner is the grandpa. I'm a little sad that they didn't get Fred Savage come, to come back for anything, but I, mean, I have a feeling he's, you know, busy. I would I would love it if Fred Savage does come back in some other, like, weird role, because... I mean, he's, got, not, he's not listed right now, but... I mean, they've also heavily implied they're going to be surprise guests. I hope so, because I do enjoy... I enjoy both Fred and Ben Savage. Yeah. So I'm excited about this. It's... I, I've mentioned before, I have this whole movie memorized, so... <laughs> I promise I won't speak along with them. You're, I never you're do. going to. I never do. I mouth along. I, I never yep. say it out loud because I'm, well, other than things like anybody want a peanut. Love. True love. <laughs> we, okay. We were joking with each other about having that be our like wedding stuff, like what the officiant was saying. And I was like, ha ha ha. That would be fun. Then we realized neither of us were joking, but we realized it after the wedding. We could have absolutely gotten away with it too. Mm-hmm. Oh, our our officiant is a friend of ours. Hi, Julie. And she uh, she would have agreed to it. She would have absolutely agreed <laughs> to it. At the same time, that probably wouldn't be a good way to do it because of what happened. Like, that's not a real marriage and that's not no. a real wedding. And I mean, we it was at a petting zoo, according to some of my family members, because it wasn't at a church, it doesn't count. <laughs> See, my family's like, that was cool. Look at the goats. Like, I literally, as soon as the ceremony was over, was like, peace out, and ran down to the baby goats in my wedding dress, got down in the dirt with them. They tried to eat her dress. They did. It was the best day of my life. Like, the wedding was secondary to the yeah. baby goats eating my dress. Oh, my God. It was it was the best wedding ever. Uh, you will not convince us otherwise. In your face, William and Kate. And I've had two weddings, so I've, I can compare. And yes. the other one was a traditional big-ass wedding in many ways, and it wasn't me. No. Like, this was definitely our speed. Yeah, I my first wedding, it was, this is what you're supposed to do for a wedding. This wedding was, fuck it, if someone doesn't like it, they don't have to come. Because <laughs> yeah. we're going to go have fun. And the whole thing, like, all inclusive was less was about $1,000. It was it was great. Anything else happened this week we should probably talk about? Well, I turned on the police scanner locally yesterday. <laughs> oh, God, the... Because these sirens just went pew, pew, pew past our house. And we're like, that's weird because we're a pretty low crime area. It was like five minutes of sirens going by our house. So I turned on the police scanner and something was going down at a local hotel. They were clearing the floors. There was a victim and the dispatcher said, do you need a medic? And then there was a pause followed by something like, we're still looking for stuff. And the victim wasn't mentioned again. So I think they went to a private channel about whatever happened to her. Then there was a manhunt. Last thing we heard that there was somebody with the description on a bar and then it went silent. So I think they went to a private channel for everything after that. Oh, and being the good true crime fan I am, last night I went on to the Johnson Johnson County arrests made yesterday. None of them fit. Ooh. Uh, There were a few domestic violence ones afterwards, but, and I, obviously none of them had details, but none of them really fit except for maybe one. You think you're skipping the most important one and the one I want to know more about. There were two. There were two like that. I told you about the second one, didn't I? No. Okay, so the first one was, yeah, we've got someone calling in saying there's someone outside her door and he's a vampire. And it was kind of hard to tell whether she 
thought he was a vampire or he was claiming to be a vampire. I think it was the second. And then later on, there's a guy running around his yard saying he's being chased by zombies. We don't know what happened with either of these. We don't know if he actually was a vampire. So we're just like stocking up on our vampire stuff because we don't know what kind of vampire we're dealing with. I made some extra garlicky guacamole right before this podcast. So we are prepared. And we also have like a big bag of rice in case it's the kind that has to stop and count every grain of rice. We're out of steaks though. I need to go to the grocery store. Yeah, we, we need to get some steaks and... Some nice porterhouse, maybe a ribeye. Has anybody ever tried to stab a vampire through the heart using like the a T-bone steak bone? I don't know. Because that's a steak. It is a steak. And then beheading tends to work no matter what kind of yeah. vampire you're looking at. I think so. we're in trouble if it's beheading because we are bad Americans and we have no good beheading devices in our we house. Don't. I've been meaning to get a machete. I know. Why don't we have any machetes? We don't even have an axe. And then the zombie thing, you know, they, nobody else could see the zombies. So either they were in his mind or we're dealing with invisible zombies and there's just no way to, to protect yourself. From yeah, that. it's like if it's invisible, it's like if it's regular zombies, we are 99% screwed. If it's invisible zombies, it's like we might as well just lay down and like put down like free meat t-shirts on or something. We should. And the fact that nobody, like nothing came from these afterwards makes me think that the, you know, organization that makes sure we don't know about the paranormal and cryptids got involved. The men in black? No, that's the, they they work on aliens. Um, actually, I don't, they also work with black-eyed kids and nobody's sure what black-eyed kids are, so. It's the, um, kids bop version of the black-eyed peas. (laughs) Jesus Christ. You know where to find me, internet. (laughs) I will take your complaints. Bring it. We are, we, oh, we forgot to finish our, we were doing a kids bop version of WAP. Um, God. The back, the, the, you know, back beat, there became, there's some chores in this house. And it was about a kid throwing a party without their parents being home and having to get their friends to clean up before. And because we have not, never, not once spent a night watching kids bop videos it's, and um, we were definitely not writing a kid's bop song with a video in mind. God, okay, we have fallen down some crazy, like, YouTube music video rabbit holes. Like, once it was, like, Britney Spears, and then it was just everything from the 90s, and then it was kid's bop, and... Austin now knows the difference between NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, and he has admitted, I think I've mentioned this, that NSYNC is superior. NSYNC is absolutely superior to the Backstreet Boys. They can all sing, and they all got the dance moves, although nobody can do a series of backhand springs like Brian Luttrell. Especially dressed as a werewolf. He could only travel by flips. Now, I think this was his way of undermining the men in black because maybe he was trying to warn us that werewolves travel exclusively by backhand springs. So the next time you're at a gymnastics competition, um, find the best gymnast there and make sure like just like throw a silver coin at them. If it burns them, they're a werewolf. Yes, this makes perfect sense. This is how, this is how it works. In fact, do they? Do you think they test for this for the Olympics? Is being a werewolf a performance-enhancing drug? I don't know. Oh man, get back at us! Is is being a werewolf a performance-enhancing drug? I believe it is. I don't think it is. It's because it's a natural condition. It's like saying, like, I'm sorry, you're banned from being a sprinter because you're too tall. It's like you can't be banned someone because they're a werewolf. It's natural. It's not natural though. Because oh, it's supernatural. It's supernatural. Yeah. Oh. It's like, we fell, we fell down another rabbit hole. So who gets to start this week? I believe it's me. Okay, excellent. And it's a biggie. Ooh. Oh, before we get started, um, and we'll mention this at the end, this is our one year anniversary of this show. One entire year of doing this. We have done very few things this consistently 
in our entire lives. Like, we are we are easily distracted people. Like we haven't even like cleaning the house. We haven't been this consistent with. We really need to get back to that. We we should. Our house is gross. It's not gross. Yes, yet. it is. It's getting close, but it's not gross. I didn't walk outside yesterday, and when I got in the shower, my feet were like muddy. <laughs> From our house. We have lots of cats. We do have lots of cats. So this is our one year. We're very excited about it. We were going to do a different episode and it's my fault because the, I didn't realize how big the history of black film was going to be. And today's, like I said, it's a doozy, but I'm getting it done today. So we were planning on doing something different, but we'll do that next time. And we're actually going to take two weeks off after this. We are coming back. This is so that we can do some, hopefully some upgrades and get some, you know, research started. Basically make the show bigger and better for you all. And we'll take the time we would normally spend recording to do that. Yep. Bigger, better, faster, stronger. I, I just blanked on what that's from. That's what the long pause was. It's, um, I think I'm misquoting both the $6 million man yeah. and the Daft Punk song. Yeah, I'm, that's kind of what I I've got both of them wrong with that. I was confused. That. Yeah, I was like, a $6 million man, but not quite. Anyway, so today is my last section of the history of black film. Like I said, this was inspired by the life and death of Chadwick Boseman, who I, do, I will talk about because... God damn, dude. God damn. My sources today, and I'm probably missing some, are Hollywood Black, the book, go read it, IMDb, USA Today, Wikipedia, Human Rights Watch, CNN, Vice, Vox, The Cornell Sun, Time Magazine, and The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm like I said, I'm probably missing some. Oh, and oh, I did say Wikipedia. Okay. So last week, I was going to go all the way through the 90s and get to the last 20 years this week, but that went on for a while. So I stopped. I'm starting out with the 90s today. And yes, I know I've left a lot out. One of the challenges about this is early on, I was like, gosh, there's just nothing out there. So that's why I thought it was going to fit in one episode. Then I realized that there was more and more. So I'm like, two episodes. And then I realized as we've gotten into the last 40 or so years, there is a lot of information. We won't know for another 20 years what was really, really, really important and what was kind of a... What can be kind of left to the side a little bit, because that's how history works. You have to wait to see what the lasting effects were. So there's so much from recently that I've had to pick and choose big time. I'm going to be leaving out a lot of people, a lot of moments. I am leaving out Oprah. That was a a hard choice because she is very important. But I was like, she's, I mean, obviously she is an actor and she's done a lot of different things. But I was like, I'm going to go I'm going to stick with film and television that is scripted. And that is not what she's best known for. But just for, remember, I, I know who Oprah is. It's, wait, you know who Oprah is? I do. This, this little known figure? I have been to the Oprah offices, actually. I have been in the hallways that Oprah has walked. <gasps> Those sacred halls? I have. Were the torches lit? They were not. Oh, she wasn't in the building. She was not in the building. Uh, So I'm going to start the 90s off with a bit of a bummer. Uh, The 90s and 2000s really solidified the idea of the white savior. Now, I'm not saying this didn't happen before because it absolutely did. But the 90s and 2000s loved them some white saviors. Because remember, we're coming off of the very conservative 80s. So we're feeling some retroactive guilt at this point. We wanted to see images of white people who were the good guys in these stories. Because understandably, we had not always been the good guys either. So the big one that comes to mind is Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh. Uh, It is based on an autobiography. So of course it is from the perspective of the white person. That makes sense. But so Michelle Pfeiffer's character goes in and teaches in this inner city school that is predominantly, if not all, students of color. And the kids are, you know, they don't want to learn. And so she has to reach them through uh, through different means. Um, I deleted the quote from Roger Ebert, but he basically said she was bribing them to learn. (laughs) And 
actually, the real person is the one who used rap as poetry and not in the movie. In the movie, she's Bob Dylan. People glommed onto that idea that, oh, rap is the only way to reach the black kids. Now, I'm not saying rap's not poetry, and I'm not saying it doesn't belong in a classroom, and I'm not saying it's not a good introduction to poetry, because it that's all true. <laughs> but the vast, vast, vast majority of teachers are white and undereducated on rap music and the importance of it. So they're using it to teach, and they don't really understand it. And then people, uh, teachers are also turning Shakespeare into rap, which again, not inherently a bad idea, but you have to understand the culture that goes into it. Also, no kid needs to be bribed to learn. You're either like reaching them or you're not and you need to reassess your actions not theirs so this was the the origin of the hi fellow kids do you know that shakespeare was the og rapper yeah seriously actually and it, iambic pentameter does have a rhythm to it so yeah. it can be wrapped mm-hmm. yeah iambic pentameter can be wrapped iambic pentameter can be set to song it, it's yeah. also why did we focus so much on iambic pentameter and not the actual language and the actual stories because oh, then you'd have to get into the the very naughty stuff that shakespeare was saying yes you would have to actually discuss the fact that queen titania was forced to have sex with a donkey by her husband who was mad that she had brought home a kid of color uh anyway Last week, I ended talking about The Cosby Show, so that brings us into the 90s, and I'm going to start it with another TV show that started in 89, but it ran, it's remembered as a 90s show, and that is Family Matters. <gasps> Urkel! Yeah, and see, that's the thing. It's thought of as the Urkel show, but Steve Urkel was actually supposed to only be on for a few episodes and then be gone, but he had such a good critical reception, both because Jaleel White is a good actor and because the character was so silly. Now, this show, because of Urkel, is often thought of as a silly show. But it actually has a lot of similarities to The Cosby Show in that this is a cohesive family unit. The parents love each other. The kids love each other. They have normal family problems that literally every family has, unless it's a really bizarre situation where the kids are raised by nannies or they're, you know, whatever. And as I'm reading The Cosby Show thing, I was like, I thought there was an episode where Theo Huxtable got stopped by the police. But as I thought about it, I'm like, no, it wasn't that show. What was it? And I remembered it was Family Matters. And it was Eddie who was stopped by the police. Eddie was stopped by the police for just a minor traffic violation in a 94 episode called Good Cop, Bad Cop. And he was arrested for a minor traffic violation. This was actually based on something that happened to the actor who played Eddie, uh, Darius McCrary, who was pulled over because his car was dirty and they thought he'd stolen the car because people who own these cars usually take care of them. What? Yeah. So he brought that in with him to work and told the people about it. And the writers were like, can we do this? And they said yes. So his dad in the show, Carl, is a cop. And he was like, there's absolutely no way you were profiled. That is not what police do. That is not who we are. Well, he finds the people who arrested him. And it's a rookie cop and a veteran sergeant, I believe. And they made it. The sergeant was like, hell yeah, I'm racist, basically. I arrested your kid because he was black. I don't think he said those exact words, but that's what it was. And so Carl has to go home and apologize to Eddie because he just he just didn't want to believe it. I believe in his heart of hearts he did, but that's, and that if he had really believed it, he wouldn't have gone and asked them. So then they eventually decide to go make a report against the sergeant and Carl looks at that rookie and is like, you need to start making your own decisions because you at the end of the day are responsible for the choices you make, no one else. And so they only make a complaint against the sergeant because Carl wants to give the rookie a chance to not be that guy. This is in 1994 and some stations refuse to air the episode because of this content. 94, not that long ago. In 1990, Whoopi Goldberg became the second black woman to win an Oscar. And she was the first one since Hattie, or to win, 
She became the second black woman to win an Oscar since Hattie McDaniel for her performance as Oda in Ghost. I've seen Ghost. I really like Ghost. This is not Whoopi Goldberg's best role. No, her best role is from Star Trek as Guinan. What about what about uh, Sister Act? Dolores Van Cartier. I still am going to go with Star Trek. Uh, this wasn't the best movie she had done. This was not the first movie she had done. And she was able to dig her teeth in more several years earlier when she was in The Colored Purple, which she actually was nominated for. But she lost to Geraldine Page for A Trip to Bountiful. But... That same year, Meryl Streep was nominated and also didn't win. So what? Yeah, our our lady of our lady of Streep was nominated and didn't win. Yeah, she she and Whoopi Goldberg both lost that year. Madness! I've never even heard of this movie. I uh, I have. I've never seen it though. So Whoopi was like super busy all through the nineties. Base and she's also in The Princess Bride tonight. Yeah, she plays the old woman who yells boo boo. Yeah, and I think she also plays a character character called Mother. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's the queen. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Uh, Whoopi was super busy. Basically, anything you saw, whether it was comedy, drama, sci-fi, she was in it. Sister Act, Sister Act 2, major hits with the two making her, according to what she said, the highest paid woman in the history of film. She also hosted the Oscars in 94, 96, 99, and 2002, and has ultimately since then gotten a full EGOT, any Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Yay! Now, I know Whoopi herself is controversial in a lot of ways, and that woman has opinions. But I wonder if she would be as controversial with those same opinions if she was white. No. Uh, Boys in the Hood came out in 91. This was Cuba Gooding Jr., Ice Cube, and Lawrence Fishburne, and it focused on growing up in the gang culture that was surrounded by drugs and crime. And it brings into sharp relief the system that keeps Black neighborhoods poor and drives many residents to crime just to survive. Now, movies set in these areas had you know, shown this stuff before, but they had never really focused on the systemic issues that caused this. That's something that a lot of people leave out of the discussion about crime is that when you have nothing else and you need to feed your family, what are you going to do? We sympathize with Jean Valjean, who steals the loaf of bread to feed his family. We don't sympathize with the black kid who steals a pair of Jordans to sell to feed his family. So that's something we need to examine within ourselves. Uh, This movie is widely believed to be a realistic representation of what life in these areas is like. And it, even at the time, got really positive reviews for this. It is in the National Film Registry. 92 brought along Malcolm X, which, you know, the movie, not the movie. The movie, yeah, he was well before that. Uh, Norman Jewison, who had directed a soldier story that I talked about last week, was supposed to direct, but Spike Lee argued that a black person should direct it, so he ended up becoming the director. People from all communities were concerned that Spike Lee would gloss things over. They thought that Spike Lee would choose what to focus on and what not to. So he kind of overcorrected <laughs> And he even insisted on shooting parts of it in Mecca. So they went significantly over budget and the movie was over three hours long. So it's a lot to get through. But he didn't leave anything out. So there's that. Uh, It starred Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. And it's in the National Film Registry. The last important person of the 90s, and I know I suck, I'm going to talk about is Will Smith. Yes! Will Smith is such an interesting person now. Like Like some just... Right now, we're in the middle of the, you know, are they in an open marriage? And what's up with his kids? They're weird. This whole thing. I'm like, honestly, his kids aren't, aren't you know, dangerous to anybody. So yeah. I don't see a problem. They're just, and they're just, they're just odd kids. They're just odd kids. Who, and they're, I think they're talented. So yeah, they're just odd kids of means. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of like, you can tell, in my opinion, from their music that they were a little bit sheltered. Yeah. And we actually sat, I was like, oh, dude, Jaden Smith has an album. So I was playing and Austin, Austin loves Jaden Smith. 
but he was like not impressed by it and i was like i kind of dig it <laughs> it was it was it was very it was i think i found jaden smith's work to be overproduced <laughs> see i'm listening to it as an artist who's trying to figure out what their genre is yeah and anyway Will Smith started as a rap artist with DJ Jazzy Jeff and their song, Parents Just Don't Understand, which won the first ever Grammy Award for Best Rap Performance. And it is a great song. Mm -hmm. Uh, He started his film and television career with The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which is a kid who is getting in trouble in his inner city life. So he shipped off to his wealthy family in Bel-Air. From West Philadelphia, where he was born and raised. Yes. It looks like the silly comedy on the surface. And when you think about it, you think like bright colors and Will Smith doing goofy things and the Carlton dance. But it actually really delved into the ideas of race and sex and love. And if teenagers can actually deal with all of these things, yes, they can. And there is probably the most memorable episode, which is in season four. It's called Papa's Got a Brand New Excuse. And that's when Will Smith's dad shows up. Or his name, I don't think his last name is Smith on the show, but Will's dad shows up. And his dad hadn't been there in over a decade, like since he was very little. His dad shows up and is like, hey, I'm sorry for everything. Let's be buds now. And Will wants his dad so badly that he forgives him and they're going to go on this trip together and it's going to be great. Uncle Phil says, I'm worried. He's like, I don't want this to be the case. I'm really worried he's going to disappoint you. I want you to be prepared. And that turns into a big fight with Will yelling at him, you're not my father, which breaks Phil. And Phil knows he's not his father, but he has been there for this kid for four years at this point. Well, Will catches his dad running off. And so he acts super tough and he's like, just leave. Just leave. I don't need you. I've never needed you. He calls him by his first name instead of dad, like kicks him out of his life. And then Phil sees this. And Phil comes in and he talks to him about it. And it's this big thing. And Will's like, I don't need him. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And he ends the whole thing with, how come he don't want me, man? And it breaks you. It mm-hmm. breaks you. And Phil shows that he he understands that you need your dad, but your dad's not here, so you've got me. And he knows he's, in a way, a consolation prize. And Black father figures in film and television are a touchy subject because they are often played in the way his dad was. I believe his dad was portrayed by Ben Vereen, but I forgot to write it down. And... We get to see a black man stepping up and saying, you know what? Your dad sucks. I'm going to try my best to not suck. And they, you know, they get into it. They have kind of a father-son relationship, but Phil is never actively unkind. And he never says, you know what? You're a waste of my time. He never does anything like that. And he does help Will get on the straight and narrow. Now, Will himself was not a bad person, but he had a rough, rough go of it. And so Phil was trying to like balance that. Will Smith went on to not just be a comedian, became like a full-blown action hero and romantic lead and all of this. And musician. Yes. Uh, And when you think of black action heroes, not super action heroes, you probably think of Will Smith. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's right up there with like Denzel Washington and Wesley Snipes. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm skipping most of the 90s and I suck and I only have so much time. Read Hollywood Black. 2000s. Black filmmakers really began to take hold in the industry. Most had been working for a long time, but their work went largely unnoticed. And those are people like Tyler Perry, Steve McQueen, and Jordan Peele. Steve McQueen always throws me off because I think of like the old, old movie star Steve McQueen. I know, I do too. I think every time it's like, I thought he was dead. I know. <laughs> and um, it's, I, I, I love Great Escape. It's... <laughs> So in 2002, Halle Berry won the Best Actress Oscar for her work in Monsters Ball, and she was the first black woman to win Best Actress. That same year, Denzel Washington won Best Actor for Training Day. This was the first time in history that black actors had won both Best Actress and Best Actor in the same year. That same year, Sidney Poitier won a, received a, an honorary award. 
He's still alive. He's still alive. Yeah. Uh, in 2002, that same year, we also, I've said that same year like six times, we also saw Queen Latifah nominated for her role in Chicago. This year was viewed as a game changer, but as we've seen with the Oscars So White movement and even Halle Berry's own statements, this changed nothing. We still have Black people underrepresented at this award show. People of color in general underrepresented at this award show. Not just in acting, but also behind the camera yes, as well. Yes, every single category People are underrepresented, both because by the time you get to Oscars-level movies, a lot of them have been bullied out of the industry, and because the Oscars so white. Yeah. Like, there are still so few people on the primary board for the Oscars. Uh, so few people who aren't white. Also, and- 2002 was the year that Halle Berry won a Razzie Award for Catwoman. <laughs> I loved her in Catwoman. It was, she acted so hard you in gotta. that god-awful you movie. You gotta. She, like, there was no material to work with, and she gave it her all, and you have to respect that. Um, The following year, this didn't help. She presented the Best Actor Award, which Adrian Brody won, and we all remember what he did. Uh He ran up on stage, grabbed her, and aggressively kissed her without her consent. Now, there are times in acting and improv where you can kind of expect these things will happen. This was not acting. This was a real moment. And she went with it. Because what else are you going to do? And But you have to wonder, would he have done that if it was a white woman? Would we have received it as well if it was a white woman? Probably not. God. I, I would have slapped Adrian Brody. I don't care if he was on national television. Well, no, like Adrian Brody's kind of disappeared. Yeah, he just he just faded away. Mm-hmm. And then we also have Tyler Perry, who I mentioned briefly already. He started out as a dramatic playwright after his abusive childhood. In 2005, his first movie came out, which was Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Tyler Perry played the character that would ultimately become his signature, who is Medea. This character has become a bit controversial. There's a long history of black uh, black men playing female characters for the sake of comedy. It was even discussed on shows like 30 Rock, and more recently, Keenan Thompson from Saturday Night Live said he will never do that again. He sees it as this form of sexism within the industry, and also laughing at the expense of black people and seeing them as, or black men, and seeing them as less of a man. So Medea has been controversial in that way. However, Diary of a Mad Black Woman was a dramedy that was about being empowered, and it spoke to Black moviegoers at the same time, and it launched his career, uh, with his future films either launching or boosting the careers of people like Idris Elba and Taraji P. Henson. So I'm not personally speaking to whether or not Medea is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just, I wanted to point out that there is some controversy with her, but people also still really love her, and they love the movies, and they go to see it. Then 2004 brought us Hotel Rwanda. I saw this movie, I loved it, and I never want to watch it again. Because, dear lord, if you want your soul crushed, watch Hotel Rwanda. At the same time, it is kind of uplifting, but mostly it crushes your soul. Oh, God. I, I, was, I read some books about the Rwandan genocide before I saw that movie, mm-hmm. and it still is just crushing going into it. Just like I, I made the mistake of watching that movie the same weekend as I watched Crash, too. Oh, God. <laughs> it was a bad weekend. It's like, you just wanted to be punched in the emotions. Yeah. Uh, Although this was significantly better than Crash. Crash was eh. Um, So this movie's about the Rwandan genocide that was happening in 94, 10 years before this movie, in which at least one million people were killed. One million. Don Cheadle played Paul, I'm going to mispronounce it, Paul Rusesa Bagina, who owned the Hotel de de Milne-Colene. It's been a long time since I've seen this, guys. He was Hutu, his wife was Tutsi, and this tension between the two groups is what was causing the genocide. The tension was. It wasn't, you know, individuals. I mean, it was individuals, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I I fully believe at the end of the day most people are trying to be good, but there's a system. There's a system that sucks. 
Paul guards a shit ton of refugees in his hotel while also trying to make it look like a normal hotel with normal hotel things so that they wouldn't get caught. The movie didn't try to hide the violence and it really showed the world what had happened in 94. Most of the world had been ignoring it while it was going on and then pretended it didn't happen afterwards. Paul ultimately survived an assassination attempt, I believe, in 96 and he escaped to Belgium. He is now a Belgian citizen, although he's been living in the US for the last few years. And then a couple weeks ago, he was arrested on terrorism charges. Do you know about this? No. Yeah, he, his family didn't know why, but he was in Dubai. Like, it sounds like they didn't know he was going to be in Dubai. There's a chance he didn't know he was going to be in Dubai. The Rwandan government said that through international cooperation, they arrested him because he was the founder and leader of an international terrorist group that he has said supportive comments about, but there is no indication that he is in any way associated with them. And no country is admitting to being part of the international cooperation. Belgium is like, if he was here, he wasn't legally extradited. So if he was visiting Belgium, we don't know. The US has not said a damn word about it. Mm-hmm. And the UAE, which is where he was, said he left for Rwanda on his own accord. He got on a private plane and flew there by himself. He wasn't arrested. <laughs> well, Rwanda saying we arrested him in, in the UAE. Yeah. Nobody knows what's happening. So, so far, we don't know what's going on. All we know is he's in jail in Rwanda. His family sent a lawyer to represent him, and the lawyer was not allowed in. Hmm. Then 2004, the Oscars had a comparatively large number of Black people nominated for Oscars, including Jamie Foxx, Morgan Freeman, Don Cheadle, and Sophia Kendo who played Don Cheadle's wife in Hotel Rwanda. People thought the black actors would negate each other's chances in their categories, leaving the white people to win, showing that there is still this belief that tokenism is involved. However, Morgan Freeman won for Million Dollar Baby and Jamie Foxx won for for Ray. Sophia Kendo did not win. She was the only black actress nominated. 2009, Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Ooh. Like other movies I've mentioned, this one did not pull any punches. You see the abuse, you see the rape, you see the mental illness. You see a black character with this rich inner life that shows she has ideas that go beyond her actual existence. This movie was, like most of them, controversial. Some loved the grittiness of it. They loved seeing that this is real shit that kids go through because she is a kid. She doesn't look like a kid, but she's a kid. And others compared it to Birth of a Nation saying it showed black people in a really negative light. And one critic noted that light-skinned actors were portrayed in a positive light, while dark-skinned actors were portrayed in a negative one. Now, that's not universally true for the movie. I have seen it, but it's fairly true. And I also read the book. The only thing I remember really bothering me, and remember, I'm a white person. I don't get to have too much of an opinion on the actual issues in the movie. The only movie that part that bothered me that I can speak to is that Precious's daughter, who she named Mongo, short for, short for Mongoloid. Yeah, it's, it's rough. Mm. Um, this baby is a product of her father raping her. She didn't want this kid. And when she was born, the baby comes out visibly disabled. So she was like, she looks like a mongoloid and named the kid Mongo, if I remember right. Anyway, and I don't like this in the movie, not because I don't think that should be portrayed, but because the baby that played the kid had Down syndrome. Down syndrome cannot be caused by incest. And we do not want to further stigmatize people with Down syndrome or their families by implying that. So that bothered me. The rest of the movie is just a repeated punch in the gut. Yeah, it, that movie bothered me, but in the way it was intended to. Yeah. Um, regardless of everything else, Monique took home an Oscar that year for her portrayal of Precious's mother. Uh, the 2000s and 2010s began to really bring us some really strong Black actresses in general. Some biggies, of course, are Taraji P. Henson, Viola Davis, and Octavia Spencer. I love Octavia Spencer. I do too! Uh, These women have all been around for a good while at this point. Octavia Spencer's and Viola Davis's first credits in IMDb are from 1996. Taraji's is from 1997. Taraji was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Viola for Doubt in 2008. 
Octavia's work went largely unnoticed for a long time, which is a huge bummer because she is one of those few actors that I'm like, I will see anything she's in. Anything she does, I am going to watch it. I believe every word this woman says as a character and she could probably get me to join a cult and I wouldn't even consider calling my dad no matter what my favorite murder says. Like, yeah, like Octavia Spencer could just be like, hey, Austin, I need to go rob this bank for me. It's like, all right. Mm -hmm. It's like I will do whatever Octavia Spencer tells me to do. Yeah. It's, it's dangerous. But I also think Octavia Spencer would never tell us to rob a bank or join a cult. No. Um, she's done some pretty cool shit, actually. She's a, she's a good person. Um, Davis and Spencer teamed up for The Help, which in 2011, it was a massive success. It's a movie where Emma Stone is a white author writing about the experiences of black maids during the civil rights movement. It was, like I said, a huge success. Octavia Spencer got a long overdue Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Viola Davis was nominated for Best Actress, didn't win. The Help began trending on Netflix after the killing of George Floyd, presumably in part of white America's attempt to understand what Black people are dealing with, which is good. We should be doing that. And that's also like, I'm so pleased to see that, you know, these books that are, you know, the bestsellers that have been around for a long time were suddenly like, oh shit, we need to actually read these. Movies that should be trending are trending. But The Help itself is kind of problematic. It's based on a book by a white woman, directed by a white man, and it focuses on the white characters despite being about the stories of the black ones. It was also accused at the time it came out, and even more now that we are seeing what's going on in the world, of perpetuating the idea of the mammy and the white savior. So it's one of those movies that it has good intentions. A lot of movies have good intentions. Dangerous Minds had good intentions. And we need to look at who's creating the movies. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I'm not even saying, like, this movie, this book was about the white woman talking to the black people. It makes sense that that's the main character. But if we're going to tell black stories, we need to have some black authors, black writers in the room. Yeah. Uh, Henson and Spencer also appeared in the later movie Hidden Figures. I love that movie. 2006 with, with Janelle, Janelle Monet. There is only one degree of separation between Janelle and me. Meaning I there are know. two between you and her. I know. Uh, because she's from Kansas City. They played mathematicians who were in no small part to the reason NASA functioned at all. And it was something that people don't even really realize or didn't until Hidden Figures that a lot of the mathematicians and scientists and engineers there were women. And many of them were black. We only ever hear the stories of the men who were in the room, who honestly were kind of doofuses in a lot of ways. And they actually did show that in the movie to a certain extent. And the guys were like, yeah, they're better at this than us. But we also see the guys having to present a lot of the information. So this movie shows segregation and sexism, though some critics said the movie was trying too hard to be feel good and glossed over some of the worst issues. That said, and I've talked about this before, this movie did make people go read the book, read other things about it, learn more. And that's what movies should do. If a movie claims to be based on real events in any way, or based, based even if, like this is a fictionalized version of this time period, you should go learn more about it. You, should, you can enjoy the movie and also know more at the same time. That's what you should do. But I, that's why I know anything about the Founding Fathers at this point, because... <laughs> Boy, we were taught some, like, super nice shit about them in school. Oh, and then Hamilton God. came out, and I'm like, I feel like I learned this wrong. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've been slowly going through a book about George Washington, and oh, God, Martha Washington was a bitch. <laughs> I don't know anything about Martha Washington. No, she was. Oof. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't either, but she was. So there were some historical inaccuracies with some debate even over whether or not the bathrooms were segregated. One person who worked there said, we desegregated them in the 50s. Katherine Johnson, who was one of the characters in the movie, said, yeah, they were segregated. I just used the white bathroom. And she's the one who is portrayed as going all the way across the campus to use the colored bathroom. 
And then we bring in this white savior figure that never actually happened, which was played by Kevin Costner, who he finds out that she's having to go all the way across the campus. And he goes with an crowbar and beats up the colored ladies restroom sign saying no more colored restrooms, no more white restrooms here at NASA. We all pee the same color. It's a I forgot about that line. Yeah, it's a powerful moment. It also didn't happen. Katherine Johnson's the one who's like, fuck it. I'm just using this bathroom. So she's not getting the credit for what she did. Some white dude is. And the director, who was a white man named Theodore Melfi, is accused of whitewashing the film, particularly because of this moment. Melfi defended this saying, quote, there needs to be white people who do the right thing. There needs to be black people who do the right thing. And someone who and someone does the right thing. So who cares who does the right thing as long as the right thing is achieved? Who does the right thing matters. Yes. Who does the right thing matters very much. Can you imagine if we gave JFK credit for all the things Martin Luther King did? JFK was there. He was there. Or like the recent thing about, oh, they found 36 kids in a tractor trailer. Why aren't we talking about this? Because it didn't happen. It was 36 over a course of two fucking weeks. Over the course of two weeks, 36 missing kids, not all of whom were trafficked, were found. Some of them were runaways. Some of them, you know, were... Family abduction. Family abductions and also family abduction way more common than anything else. And family trafficking way more common than some shadowy organization, which is what this implies. People were fucking heroes in the story and they are getting no credit because of this false narrative that's going around. Katherine Johnson is not getting credit for just being like, fuck you guys, I'm using this bathroom because we gave it to Kevin Costner. Now, I don't blame Kevin Costner for this, although he did some questionable stuff like Dances with Wolves, which is another white savior story. Dances with Wolves is a complicated one, too. So we should all care who did the right thing. We should always care who did the right thing. We can't, we shouldn't give credit to somebody who didn't do the right thing. Melfi did bring up an interesting point though, and I'm I'm not going to have an opinion about it other than the fact that his reasoning is really stupid. It's just something to chew on. He said that there shouldn't be black film, white film. There should just be film because he says that the labels automatically create segregation between the movies, which is an interesting point. Like if you say black film, white people are less likely to go see it or they're going to be more able to separate themselves from the material if they do. His reasoning was stupid though. His reason is any human can tell a human story. Cool, blackface. Got it. <laughs> I can go play any black character I want, according to Melfi. Oh, cool. So he would, cool. Then just like Scarlett Johansson, I'm going to go play a Japanese character. That was, uh, oh no, she did play a Japanese character. Yeah. I was thinking about Emma Stone playing the Hawaiian character. Oh, that too. We I talked mean, about that yesterday. What, whatever. All of those redheads look the same. <laughs> So yeah, his reasoning is stupid, but it is something interesting to think about is should we still be classifying things as black films, white films, Asian films? Just like should we still be classifying books as boy books and girl books or toys like girl toys and boy toys? So it's, it's just kind of something to think about. His reason is stupid. Then we have 12 Years a Slave and Django Unchained. They are different movies. I'm putting them together because they came out really close together and they both are supposedly about slavery. 12 Years a Slave is based on a memoir by Solomon Northup, who was born free and kidnapped into slavery. Django Unchained is about a man who was born into slavery. 12 Years a Slave is directed by Steve McQueen, who I've mentioned is black, and the book was adapted for the screen by John Ridley, who is also black. Django was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, who is decidedly not black. He it might be whiter than us. I don't know if that's possible. Yeah, we are damn near translucent. Mm-hmm. Tarantino has basically admitted, or actually has admitted, this is a black exploitation film. And it is one in the vein of Mandingo, which I mentioned last week is the black brute stereotype. While 12 Years is intended to be basically anything but this. An article in the Cornell Daily Sun says that despite the violence of Django, it actually doesn't seem as violent as 12 Years a Slave. 
because their violence is so over the top and ridiculous, while 12 Years a Slave is actually showing the brutality that people went through. I'm not the right person to speak to a lot of this because I don't like Quentin Tarantino movies. I've enjoyed, a, I, I liked Kill Bill. Yeah, Tarantino is... I feel like a lot of his stuff is, I just want to show as much violence as I can and I don't really need to plot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and his weird, just contrived Quentin Tarantino dialogue. Yeah, and he really, like, I think a lot of it's like, I'm using for, looking for an excuse to use the N-word and get away with it. Yeah. And while I'm not saying that word doesn't have cultural significance, dude, calm down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think this is all stuff to keep in mind when you're watching any kind of movie about a shitty historical event. Who's telling the story? Whose story is it to tell? I'm not saying a white person can't write a good movie or book about slavery. And I'm sure, like a lot of historians who write books on this are white. But when we're telling the story from that perspective, maybe it wouldn't hurt to have some black voices in the room. Or in the case of 12 Years a Slave, have that be the majority of the voices. I'm skipping a lot. But again, time. So let's skip ahead to 2017 and one of my favorite movies of all time, if not my favorite movie of all time, Get Out. I I agree with her. This might be my favorite movie. So Austin and I love horror movies and we went, I think, on opening day. We did go opening day. I think we went like even early in the day so we wouldn't get spoilers because I don't remember leaving at night. I don't remember either. But yeah, we we did see it opening day and it was... So we saw it, assuming it was going to be a horror movie, because the commercials purposefully misled the audience into believing that, which is fucking brilliant. Because a lot of people are like, I am tired of being preached to by my movies. I'm tired of it. I don't want, I don't want my movies to make me think. We still would have seen it. Yeah. Uh, but we were going to it assuming that there were going to be monsters. And there were, but not the monsters you expect. Because the monsters were human beings. Now, if you haven't seen this movie, you need to go see it. Immediately. Immediately. But you also need to skip the next couple of minutes because I'm going to go into detail. And if you haven't seen this movie, I will be ruining it for you because I will tell it poorly. So watch it. I don't care what you have to do to get hold of this movie. You need to watch it. Go to your local library and check out a copy of Get Out. Mm Mm-hmm. So we also, we went to see it thinking, this is weird. Jordan Peele's that comedian guy. Like, yeah. We, and we loved Key and Peele. Mm-hmm. But we're like, this is weird. We didn't know anything about Jordan Peele like outside we had, of Key and Peele. Like, last thing we'd seen him do was the movie Keanu, which was fine. Was that, he? but he didn't write and direct that movie. This was his directorial yeah. debut. Um, or if he did, Keanu came afterwards. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. Keanu was ridiculous. <laughs> so Daniel Kaluuya, I should have looked it up, plays Chris Washington, who goes with his white girlfriend, Rose Armitage, who is played by Allison Williams, to visit her parents, played by Catherine Keener and Bradley Whifford. Good fucking job, Jordan Peele. This is a great cast. Uh, An article on Vox says this movie is about benevolent racism, saying it's interested in showing how racist behavior that tries to be aggressively unscary is just as horrifying and in making us feel that horror in a visceral bodily way. So Rose hasn't told her parents she's dating a black guy. And he's like, wait, you're taking me to meet people who don't know I'm black. Do you not understand why this makes me uncomfortable? And she's like, it's fine. They're very nice people. They voted for Obama twice. Yes. And that's a big thing. They keep saying, oh, I voted for Obama. Oh, I really like that Jesse Owens guy who's been dead for a while. (laughs) They do this thing that white people do to people of color where they get uncomfortable and blurt out something like, I really like Patrick Mahomes. Like, yeah, everybody likes Patrick Mahomes. Why are you specifically telling me this? It's like every, everybody who is not playing for another NFL team likes Patrick Mahomes. I think even the people playing for other, other teams like Patrick yeah. Mahomes. They're just mad that he's so much better than them. <laughs> and he's so cute. I want to pinch his cheek. I know he's not a baby, but I'm like, oh, he's so cute. He's like, he just, he has such a 
you look at him and you're like, that is a kind soul yeah, right there. There is some definite kindness behind Patrick Mahomes and his his charity, Mahomes. Mahomes, and he builds adaptive playgrounds so that anybody can go to a playground. I'm like, I'm in love with you, but he's got a fiance, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and you're also too young for me. I know you're disappointed, Patrick Mahomes. I don't even like it's football. Like, I just really like him. So like, like, you could have gotten married at Petting Zoo too, but no. No, like this is something that white people do though. We go up to people of color and we blurt out something that we mean to be nice, but isn't nice. And we do that to anybody who's... Yeah, we do that with... We're, we're also bad at talking to people. Yes. And then like straight people also do this to gay people. Oh, I saw milk. Great. I really like, like I really like RuPaul's Drag Race. Cool. It's like, here, let me give you this copy of Will and Grace. It's like, let me show you actively that I'm not racist and not homophobic. It's like... Or you could just not be racist and not homophobic. I'm not saying you can never talk to your black friends about black act- black actors or anything like that. Just maybe don't start the conversation with a new person that way. <laughs> um, so Chris is immediately unsettled, too, by the behavior of two black people who work for the family. A housekeeper named Georgina and a groundskeeper named Walter, who are played by Betty Gabriel and Marcus Henderson. The mom... Uh, Catherine Keener is a hypnotherapist and puts him under ostensibly to cure his smoking addiction. And he ends up falling into the sunken place. This is basically a place where you are inside yourself, but trapped. You can see everything your body is seeing. You can experience everything your body is experiencing and you can't do anything about it. This is kind of how we all feel under the Trump regime. Jordan Peele said in a tweet, the sunken place means we're marginalized. No matter how hard we scream, the system silences us and says that he got the idea when he was thinking about that moment when you're falling asleep and you feel yourself fall, so you wake up. And he's like, what happens if you don't catch yourself and you keep falling? So in his mind, it was this hellish landscape where you are trapped inside yourself and your body keeps going, your body keeps living and you don't have any control. Anyway, she makes him talk about like the worst experiences of his life, like his guilt over his mother's death, which was not his fault. And she insists that he should feel bad about it. And so that's kind of one of the things he'd have to live in if he was permanently in the second sunken place. So it turns out this family has a habit of, you know, luring predominantly black people to their house and literally auctioning them off to old white people. But not for slavery in the traditional sense. They're going to remove the black person's brain, put in the white person's brain, giving them immortality. So they're auctioning them off based on things like this person's particular talents that will remain as part of their like epigenetic center or this person's physique or whatever. So he's being auctioned off, I believe, because of his photography skills mm-hmm. and because he's, he's built. So, and then you will stay in the sunken place and you will see everything your body is seeing, but you will have no control. That's what is going to happen. So Chris does escape and he kills the entire family in the process. With the movie ending ambiguously, as Chris is leaving a police cruiser, like he has just strangled Rose to death, like in the middle of the road. The cops undoubtedly saw this to a certain extent. And the police cruiser pulls up with his friend Rod in the car who's, who called them and was like, something is fucked up over there because Chris couldn't call the police. Georgina had accidentally unplugged his phone. So Rod had called the police and was like, something's fucked up. You need to go to this house. My friend is in danger. So they act- he actually managed to convince them. The movie ends there. And yeah. you're left going, how the fuck is he going to get out of this? Because he did just kill this whole white family. And he's a black guy. And I believe it was in the South. I can't remember. But it's like. I think it was upstate New York, maybe. It might have been upstate. It, it might have. I either way, it felt like the fucking South. Yeah. I think it was upstate New York. Yeah. And oh, there's, there were multiple endings to it, too. One yes. Where, oh, okay. Um, this is not the original ending. The original ending that was filmed and through all the screen tests was Chris was in jail insisting everything was fine. And that was intended to show this is what 
what racism is like. Everything's fine. This is just the way the world is. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. I took care of the problem. We're good. But several shootings of black people by police happened right when this movie was about to come out. And Peel was like, oh, this is not the right ending for this. So he felt it needed something lighter. But that still leaves you wondering what the fuck is going to happen. And other endings are considered they are almost all on the DVD. So if you rent the DVD, you can watch these different endings. I still am like legitimately worried about what is happening to this fictional character in yes. this movie. I wonder that at the end of a lot of horror movies where people die, I'm like, how are you going to explain this? Like, oh, Knives Out was another one. I'm like, how is this going to go for you? <laughs> the way it was advertised was great because it undermined that idea that it was a black movie. Everyone went, everyone was jarred by it. There are no white saviors in this movie. And like, there are times where the you know people in the sunken place are kind of able to take back over. once. Like, and it's, it's oh. just, if there's a savior in this movie, it is not a single white person. The white people in this movie, there really aren't any good white people. No. And- at no point, like, I've never heard Jordan Peele say, white people are universally evil. But it needs to be pointed out that a lot of the times we do suck. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for Best Picture, and it is one of only five horror movies to ever have that happen. I did not see The Shape of Water, which won that year, even though I do love Guillermo del Toro. But I just can't see anything being better than Get Out. And it did win for Best Screenplay. So this is his first, you know, big thing, and he won. That's cool. I'm not going to talk about Us, which was his next film, but if you haven't seen it, you need to. It was definitely more horror. It was it was more horror, but I read some interesting analyses of it and how this is really a film about oppression. Ooh. It's just less about any one race and more about classism. So I'm going to wrap this up with the whole reason I did this, which is uh, Chadwick Boseman and Black Panther. In a Time Magazine article, writer Jameel Smith said, What seems like just another entry in an endless parade of superhero movies is actually something much bigger. It hasn't even hit the theaters yet and its cultural footprint is already enormous. It is a movie about what it means to be black in both America and Africa and more broadly the world. He goes on to say after the Obama era perhaps none of this should feel groundbreaking but it does. In the midst of a regressive cultural and political movement fueled in part by white nativist movement the very existence of Black Panther feels like resistant. Resistance. Its, the- it, its themes challenge institutional bias, its characters take unsubtle digs at oppressors, and its narrative includes prismatic perspectives on Black life and tradition. Unlike a lot of movies, this is actually a celebration more than a critique in a lot of ways. It celebrates Black leadership, it celebrates Black kindness, and it also celebrates people who aren't Black who are, on, who are there fighting alongside, instead of looking at people who aren't Black and being like, yeah, we hate you. Now, that's in there. Mm-hmm. That is in there. But they focus on the ones they can celebrate, and they also focus on the realities that can cause somebody to become T'Challa or to become Killmonger. Because T'Challa and Killmonger are the same person, except they were born in different places. Uh, T'Challa's power doesn't come from his suit, like a lot of people believe. It comes from the inherent power of being a powerful Black man in a world that doesn't want that. The movie also has some kick-ass women, like Nikia, uh, who's played by Lupita Nyong'o, Okoye, played by Danae Guerrera, Shuri, T'Challa's sister, played by Letitia Wright, and an all-female group of royal guards. I have not felt like that excited about a superhero movie other than Wonder Woman because I did cry during the battles in Wonder Woman because I was so pleased to see women represented that way. Also, the why did you why the fuck did you put a romantic anything in there? Just let her be. Um, but they subverted the usual like oh the uh, the love interest dies in the superhero movie. It's like yeah the love it, but it's a dude this time. Yeah. 
using that trope, that gem. So as I've mentioned, the villain is Killmonger, who's played by Michael B. Jordan, who I also love. And the Time article says, I mentioned the mirror images where they were born. T'Challa was born in Wakanda, where Black people are the majority and not vilified from within. While Killmonger was born in Oakland, where Black people are vilified. Uh, Time Magazine said, By exploring the disparate experiences of Africans and African Americans, Cougar shines a bright light on the psychic scars of slavery's legacy and how Black Americans endure the real-life consequences of it in the present day. Killmonger's perspective is rendered in full. His rage over how he and other Black people across the world have been disenfranchised and disempowered is justifiable. So he's a villain, but not for the reasons you expect. Usually, like, we get the Joker and it's like, look at the mental illness. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, we get these villains who are a product of something very specific that is exclusive to them. Killmonger is a villain because that's what he was raised to be. And... So it's it's brilliant in that way. And then there's this whole theme of it's really hard to be a leader and also be a good person at the same time. And T'Challa does see a lot of himself in Killmonger throughout the movie. And he's like, this is luck. This is bad luck for him. Good luck for me. But not in a, you know, I'm better than you a, in a, this is not okay. So Chadwick Boseman was in contact with kids with cancer and their family, families as the movie filmed saying that some of the kids set told him they are holding on for this movie. This is the only reason they're still alive. So no pressure, Chadwick, right? They wanted to see themselves as the superhero. Black kids don't get that a whole lot. They don't get to be the hero in the story. And so these kids are not only fighting cancer, but they've never gotten to see themselves as the hero. And so he he worked really hard to make the best possible movie for them while also fighting cancer himself and not telling people. And the people he did tell, because he must have told, like there must have been medics on the set, who knew? Mm-hmm. The hair and makeup people on Undoubtedly knew. No one said a word. Anybody who knew has kept their mouth shut until now, and they are still keeping their mouth shut because that's what he wanted. There is no way people didn't know. Good for them, good for him, because he didn't want to be the actor with cancer. He wanted to just be Chadwick Boseman, the actor. So he threw all of this into this movie because he knew this was a movie that mattered, and that is basically how he looked at his role in Hollywood as a whole. He didn't start acting in Hollywood until he was 35 years old. Um, the only, like, he tried before that, but it didn't really work out. And like his his first TV show was All My Children. And the role was actually taken over by Michael B. Jordan because he, you know, got the script and it was fine. And then they gave him the script. They're like, Chips, by the way, your character's mom is a crackhead and your dad abandoned you. And he said, I'm not doing that. I'm not perpetuating these ideas. And they're like, fine, you're fired. And he's like, cool, peace out. He insisted on auditioning for roles that they flat out called and offered him. Like when he played James Brown and Get On Up. Because he insisted for that one that he can't dance and he didn't want to do a disservice to James Brown. Uh, they decided he was good enough and the Brown family was like, yeah, you're, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Um, before he agreed to Marshall, he insisted on getting the okay from, his, from the family because he was a different skin tone than, than Marshall was. And he was like, and I also want them just, I want them to say it's okay for me to be this family member for them. And they said it was fine. For Black Panther, he insisted on doing an African accent, not a South African accent, which is what the filmmakers wanted. They wanted the accent that was influenced the most by white people. And he said, no, I'm playing a Black African king in a place that is not South Africa. I am not doing the colonizer's accent. They're like, okay, cool. <laughs> and I'm really glad they yeah, like, that's that. South African, that's, that's the Netherlands that's influenced that. British. And the British. Mm-hmm. He refused to do movies that were too dark in their stories or refused, or showed black people as negatives or stereotypes in general. And when he was offered to represent a liquor company, which would have gotten him so much money, he said, I can't because how do I show young black kids and kids of color they can be superheroes and then do this? The Hollywood Reporter said Michael Green, Chadwick's agents, told them it was always about bringing light. He accomplished so much and all while fighting the darkness 
literally. Until the last couple days of his life, he was fighting it. And that's where I'm ending my history of black film. If you want to learn more, read Hollywood Black, because there's no way to cover 100 plus years. That was good. You ready for some questions? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I'm asking more than usual because I'm asking for all three episodes. Uh, will this be on the test? Early black actors in film had to wear blackface. Yes. You know, interestingly, I was a theater major and I didn't learn that. Huh. Even in my theater makeup class, we never learned that black actors had to also wear blackface. Um, I learned it from a play. Hmm. Birth of a Nation was the first full-length ma- movie that we still have, anyway, that's about a black character. Will that be on? Will that fact be on the test? It depends on what the class is, really. Like, if it's a film class, yeah, I guess, but, like... And then will the paradox of Birth of a Nation being an important and well-written and well-shot film and being super racist at the same time be on the test? It was on the test. <laughs> <laughs> will the tropes like Mammy and Uncle Tom be on the test? Oh, I don't know. What about the white savior trope? Probably. So I guess you'd have to have all of them. Will Bill Cosby be on the test? Not for a while. That's such a hard one. It's so Mm -hmm. hard when somebody made such a major contribution in so many ways. And not just to film, but like to education. This dude did. But by God, if I could go and break his nose, I would. Mm -hmm. Will the Times places refuse to show movies or TV shows because they might hurt white people's feelings be on the test? I think it'd have to be. Will the fact that ABC's fear that Roots would be a colossal failure caused them to put it over consecutive nights rather than weeks so they wouldn't go into sweeps week be on the test? Ooh. I don't think we'd want to make one of our precious corporations, especially one that's owned by Disney, look bad. So that won't be on the test. Although, I mean, Disney fully admits to making Song of the South. Yes. Will Oscar So White be on the test? Maybe eventually, but not currently. It's going to be a few more years before that happens. And will the importance of representation in general, but particularly in positive and powerful roles, be on the test? Yes. All right. That is the history of Black film and my hopefully minor, like my hopefully good, if not minor, tribute to Chadwick Boseman. That was, that was a good tribute. And you have done roughly three hours of this and you barely scratched the surface. Barely. I would recommend anyone who wants to learn more, go out, learn more. Please do. And if you want some of the sources we used or want some recommendations from us, which you're welcome to, we'll give them to you. But yeah. Hollywood Black is the one comprehensive guide I have found. There are individual articles. I believe there were some dissertations and theses that I couldn't access. Lots and lots of pieces about individual movies or individual actors. There are, of course, whole biographies and autobiographies. There, There's a lot you can do. Don't leave this podcast and think, now I know everything. Hell, leave this podcast thinking, I have questions. That's what I want you to do. I want mm-hmm. you to leave these last three episodes going, I have questions. Yeah. You can even say, I didn't learn anything and I have questions. I will feel just fine about that. Okay, well, we are like, we are going to jump right into my segment now. Mm-hmm. So... I was going to do something about GMOs, but it ended up being boring. So at the last minute, I switched to something near and dear to everyone's hearts right now. If you're like me, you've been going completely crazy dealing with isolation for the last few months. What are you talking about? You have had me this whole time telling you nonstop about Cyclops babies and internal decapitation. And other than Maddie, this this podcast where I shout facts about rotting whale carcasses into the void is where I do most of my talking. So, since circumstances turned people into hermits in 2020, I thought some historic hermits might be inspire us <laughs> here and now in the darkest timeline. Oh boy, okay. So, the word hermit itself has its root in the Greek ermite, uh, desert dweller, and hermit is actually a part of the Christian tradition. It's of living out in the woods, 
uh, out of religious conviction and under the theory that wandering in the desert would grant clarity. That's how I always get clarity. Yep, wandering in the desert. We have no deserts around here. It's why we've been so vague and unclear. Mm -hmm. That's actually the real reason that I skipped over so much. I didn't get to go to the desert. So yeah, hermits. it's It's actually a type of like monk as recognized by the Catholic Church at one point in time. Yes. So hermits. It's I actually knew that. These like had its point its origin in at least in Western tradition, purely in Christianity as like a religious thing. The first Christian her- hermit is Paul of Thebes. Now, how he became a hermit is his parents died and his brother in law said, We are not splitting this inheritance and drove him out of town <laughs> under penalty under threat of death. So Paul went to live in the desert. He lived by an oasis and a tree in a cave. He lived there until he was 113. That seems real. That seems real. Oh, it continues to seem real. (laughs) Anthony the Great, a monk and also a saint, uh, had a dream about this hermit. So he went to the spot in the stream where he met Paul and talked to him for a day and a night. And they shared some bread. And apparently, like, they each grabbed an end and they managed to split it and eat it. And that was important symbolically somehow. <laughs> well, I mean, there is some real symbolism when you have, like, an Oreo. And you split and it. And you split it. But that really comes down to who has the cream on their side. So. So, when Anthony came back the next day to talk to Paul, Paul was dead. Anthony, kind of like Paul McCartney. Yeah. Paul, he is. Paul. Paul. Paul hashtag Paul's dead. <laughs> So Anthony put like his good cloak on him and took some of Paul's stuff for a cloak that he'd only wear on special occasions. And then a couple of lions helped dig Paul's grave. That seems real. Yeah. And then naturally Paul of Thebes is now a saint because the bar was just that low. Did Thebes have lions? Apparently they did. Where is Thebes? Egypt. Oh yeah. Okay. So I was yeah. thinking it was Greece for some reason. Yeah, that was Paul of Thebes. The first, the first hermit. And he's like, he's, he's a saint. He has a feast day in January. So they put it in the coldest month yes. for the guy who lived in the desert. Yeah, no. I mean, they're probably running out of feast days. I mean, there's only 365 of them. I think, well, I think a lot of days are multiple saints feast days. Okay. And his symbol, because he is like, there are some monks who like revere him. His symbol is a couple of lions and a raven and a palm tree. Is that because he speaks to us nevermore? <laughs> Quoth the raven. I mean, he did have a bunch of, a, a bust of pilot. I don't know. Okay, moving on. Wait, he had a bun- a bust of, like, Pontius Pilate? No, I was trying to remember the raven, and I was forgetting the lyrics. Oh. Too. The lyrics. The lines. So, we're moving on to my favorite one. One of my favorites. Simon Stylites. No relation to Harry Styles. Are you sure? Pretty sure. So, this guy was so astute that the other monks actually had to ask him to leave the monastery, because he was, like, just like, no, we- he would- he fasted for all of Lent. He did not eat or drink for Lent. Yeah. He would also uh, refuse to sit down until he would pass out. So he was just pretty hardcore about the austerity thing. And the other monks didn't like it, so they just kicked him out. Mm-hmm. So he started being more astor, and his like stunts, like not eating for Lent, got lots of people to come out and visit him, which annoyed him because he wanted to be praying and living uh-huh. his, his best monk life. His best monk life. So he wandered around until he found some ruins with a pillar, and he just climbed this pillar and sat on top of it. This pillar was also known as a style. Again, no relation to Harry Styles. So he moved on top of this pillar. It was about a meter square. That's the space he lived on. 
Mm-hmm. And he got like village kids and people just to bring him water and food. He might have had a bucket and pulley system to bring it up or they might have climbed. No one really knows. And no, I don't know what his pooping situation was. <laughs> so. Well, if he was fasting that much, he probably didn't have to. Probably didn't have lot. to as much. But I mean, uh, so his plan to live upon this, this pillar to get away from people who were asking him for advice did not work. No. He became so famous that people actually went on pilgrimages to get advice from him. So he had to basically set up office hours in which people would be allowed to climb a ladder to go up and talk to him. Uh-huh. And eventually it got so bad that the other monks had to build a wall around him to pe- people, keep people from coming and bugging him all hours of the day. Mm-hmm. Also, women were not admitted after they built the wall. Sure. Not even his mother. Sure. Who was really mad and was basically shouting at him. It's like, why are you letting me visit you? And eventually his argument of, it's okay, we'll meet again in heaven if you go. <laughs> One, um, he his mother was admitted in her coffin after she died so he could view her. So <laughs> he looked at the corpse and be like, nope, that's definitely in hell. Yeah. And he ended up living on top of this thing until he died and he was up there for 37 years. When he died, did he like stay up there or did he fall off? No, they found him uh, hunched over in prayer when he was dead. So this also sparked a trend where for about a century there were stylites everywhere, which was just hermits and monks living on top of pillars. Uh-huh. There was a century of this, and yeah. it also might have influenced the weird 1920s fan uh, fad of flagpole sitting. Yep, I was about to bring that up if you didn't. <laughs> yes. uh, a church, uh, he was buried at the foot of his pillar, and a church was built around it. And unfortunately, oh, I didn't mention, um, this was near Aleppo in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, the church was struck by a missile, and the pillar is no more. Mm-hmm. Here's a third ancient one, which I don't have a lot of. I just love her. Her name was Sarah of the Desert. Sure. Even though she lived next to the Nile, she refused to look at it. And she spent her life in combat against a demon who was trying to tempt her into fornication. Okay. So, yep, she was a famous hermit just because she was fighting a sex demon her entire life and wouldn't look at a river. It's like, there's a lot of weird, like, mental illnessy stuff going on with hermits. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's still the case today with most people who live in hermit-like lifestyles. Yeah, there's... Or there are people like me who are just like, yeah, I don't like people. Yeah. And, oh, also for a time in the 18th century, wealthy English, like, aristocrats would build fake hermitages and hire old men to pretend to be hermits to entertain guests. Mm-hmm. That sounds like humans. That sounds like humans. And of course, you know, Christians weren't the only people with a tradition of hermits. Uh, Taoists, Taoists, Buddhists, Hindus all have a long history of hermits. Mm-hmm. Uh, famously, Lao Tzu, credited as the author of the Tao Te Ching, by some reports spent the last years of his life living in a hermit solitude. Mm-hmm. And then there were there was this poet, Lin Bu, of, who was alive in the in the Song Dynasty, and he rejected society and a chance for, like, a job in the government bureaucracy so he could pursue the pure craft of poetry. He was famous for both his poetry and his Astur lifestyle of pursuing nothing but poetry. Mm-hmm. And I am noticing a pattern of people who became famous hermits just on, like, this weird, like, I'm getting attention for being... For not wanting attention. For not wanting attention. So this is... There were lots of ancient hermits. Most of them are super boring, as you expect someone who just decided, I'm going to go live in the desert so no one talks to me. Not very exciting people. But then let's get to some modern hermits. Uh, there's The first one I'm going to talk about is the like rugged wilderness type who just rejects society and goes off to live on his own, thinking like, I'm going to be like Thoreau, or I'm going to be off of the grid and write my Unabomber anti-government manifesto <laughs> 
where the where the men in black can't find me and I can wear my tinfoil hat. I love all the people who are refusing to do their census because they want to stay off the grid, but they're posting on Facebook about wanting to stay off the grid. And that's, I'm like, you understand that your phone is tracking where you are every moment. It's like, yeah. If you're at a computer, you still have an IP address yeah. and you're using something that's associated with an email address at the very least that belongs to you. You are way more findable by Facebook than by the census. Yeah. My favorite modern term I wrote about was a guy in Maine who just kind of snapped one day and wandered off into the woods. And he survived for years. Oh, I think I know this one. By just breaking into cabins mm-hmm. and summer camps and stealing food, propane, blankets, and books and magazines. Mm-hmm. And then he would just go back and spend the winters in a drunken haze bundled up next to a propane heater. Living his best life. Yeah. His best very fire risk life. But there's a way more common type of modern hermit. Is he the one that got caught stealing stuff and ended up back in society? Yeah, he got arrested and now he's in jail. I thought, okay. Yeah, but he never hurt anybody. He never hurt anybody. He He did. He stole stuff. He stole a lot of stuff. Yeah. And was kind of like a local, like, terror. It's like, this was guy breaking into everything. And lots of people were afraid of him, even though he- I think I'm thinking about a different one then, because people didn't really realize this guy was there. And he got caught stealing from, like, some regular campers who were like, that's weird. Yeah, this guy, um, a, like, camp, a camp, like, a summer camp, set up an alarm on the freezer because someone kept breaking into it, and it alerted a deputy who was nearby who came out and arrested him in the act of stealing from the summer camp. Okay. Yeah. But here, we're going to talk about a more common kind, which is the hikikomori. Um, it's from, it's from Japanese. It literally means pulling inward. Okay. Um, the Health, Labor, and Welfare Ministry of Japan defines it as someone who has not gone to work or school and rarely, rarely interacts with anyone outside their immediate family for more than six months. So me. So us. So a lot of people. Actually, no, we, we go to work and we went to school. Yeah. But we, I think most people have not interacted with anybody outside yeah. their immediate family. Now, this phenomenon was at first thought to be uniquely Japanese because they have a very rigid society where outsiders are ostracized to a large extent and... Like, you know, you are, if you are not part of the group, you are very much outside of the group. Mm-hmm. So they thought this was unique to Japan for a while, but it's very, it is not. They're finding it in other countries, like uh, across Asia, Korea, Hong Kong, France, Germany, Spain, the United States. It is everywhere. But anyway, it's first observed on a large scale in Japan, and they estimate that maybe half a million or more people are living this hermit style life. That's kind of what Tara Westover, I think that was her name, was living in the book Educated, where she talks about what her family was like. Yeah. And just the popular image is that these are young people who are lazy and just want to play their video games. Mm -hmm. That is definitely not the case. It is largely in part a trauma response to people who are... You know, viewed as outsiders in society, um, have been like, you know, ridiculed or made fun of. Hi, Draco. And are just like made to be outsiders. And so these social connections just slip away and slip away more. And they have less incentive to be a part of society. I've seen this with young people here in the States. It's just like, it's a trauma response. It's a trauma response. It's part of social pressure, insecurity, isolation, low self esteem, and just people like not feeling like they can go to get help for any of this. So they just kind of slip more and more inward and stop interacting with society. Also, about 34% of these people depend completely on their parents in Japan. It's also part of the family not wanting to seek help for them out of the shame of having to admit that someone in their family has this mental illness. And it's kind of keep them Or quiet. has gone through trauma because yeah. that's usually like you as a parent, I would imagine you want to protect your kids from trauma. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're the cause of the trauma. Yeah. 
And it's just, you know, not seeking help out of shame is a big part of uh-huh. it. And it's like, they vary from huge degrees. There's some that won't leave their rooms and like just are basically their parents will leave or someone will leave food outside the door for them and they'll open it and take it. Or some where people will just not leave except for at night and will go to like distant places to get food so that uh-huh. they, no one recognizes them. Some would even go in, only go to stores if there was a non-Japanese person working behind the desk. So it was less likely that it was someone they knew. Part of the study, uh, many of these people studied were very active online in video games. And they thought, well, clearly this is just a symptom of internet addiction. But it was not a higher percentage than amongst their peers of, like, using the internet and being online. Uh-huh. So, it, internet addiction does play a part, but it is not the deciding factor. It is definitely a trauma response. Yes. Treatment. Uh, people will get on web chats with social lasers and ther- social workers and therapists to try and get them out of it. Uh, there are social workers that actually go to people's houses and will just talk to them through the door, mm-hmm. hoping they'll listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually have, in some places, they've started paying people to participate in society, like to get on these chats and just talk to people. Mm-hmm. It's like, we will pay you $9 if you join this hour-long chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a big thing that got a lot of people out was the game Pokemon Go. Yeah. No, that was, that game, I think, saved me when I was going through a really bad depressive period. I The only reason I would leave the house was to go play Pokemon Go. And I even told Austin at the time, I'm like, if I, if I didn't have this, I would just be going to work, coming home, going to bed, and that would be it. You would never see me. I would never talk to you. Yeah. And so the reason that it provided kind of a transition for people. It was like a safe virtual environment because it was the augmented reality. It gave them a clear objective and something they wanted to participate in. And it, participation required them leaving their house. Uh-huh. Also, there is a company in Japan that is working on a therapy robot for these people. Uh-huh. So it's lots of that. And of course, they found some evidence that like outpatient treatment where they just get you out of your environment and you're in a facility while you're working on it for sometimes up to a year has more lasting results where people who are basically in their environment being treated are much more likely to fall back into it and fall into it more severely than before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shinichiro Matsuguma uh, set up the the Strength Association, a nonprofit to find and treat Haikikomori. Currently, he is providing coaching to 32 individuals. Uh, he uses discussions of video game strategy to start dialogues with people and get them to talk and be engaged. Mm-hmm. And he also uses talking to them about their skills in these games to build up their self-esteem and confidence. It's like they think that they are worthless because they couldn't find a job or like they just like they couldn't make friends easily or they didn't fit in. So they think they are worthless and they shouldn't bother. He will talk to them about their skills in this video game saying that's a skill. You have worked on this. You are capable of doing good things. You are a good person. You can contribute with your video game skills. Mm-hmm. So he's found a lot of success doing it that way and there's also a large percentage of 40 to 60 year old hikakamori uh mostly men who have again fallen out of society some people think this is not a new phenomenon we've just newly observed it uh so it is also raising a lot of concerns with public health officials in the age of the coronavirus yes because the factors that lead to people adapting this lifestyle are unemployment isolation upheavals in their way of life and the uh their growing dependence on the internet and video games for communication that becomes their normal that's how they talk to people so they don't leave and do anything else these are all factors that have been decided by people who have like, you know, moved on and gotten treatment and gotten out. It's like, this is what led me into it. And there is a growing concern that we are going to have a lot more once this quarantine is over. And we should be prepared to... Not just in Japan, I'd imagine, like, everywhere. This is absolutely everywhere. Like, I'm falling into that where I'm like, 
oh, I don't really want to talk to people. I like I'm I'm happy just texting or communicating online and I am still I got back into Pokemon Go, not because of a depressive period, just because I was like, I need incentive to leave the house now. And honestly, I, I walk like a couple miles a day now. Yeah. Because of Pokemon Go. Because of Pokemon So for the people out there, be aware of the people around you, like people you talk to online, make sure they're okay. Watch out for like people's falling into depression and see if like maybe don't try to help them yourself, but encourage people to seek help. Although if gently. You, if, don't if you believe someone is suicidal, you will not give them the idea to be suicidal if you ask them are you having suicidal thoughts have you made a plan uh people won't always be honest but you are not planting the idea in their head this is what is recommended by psychologists that you do that you ask them and then you either find them help or you get them to seek help yes so questions super fast because we are running out of time okay so will the fact that the first will this question be on the test will the first christian hermit was chased out of his home via an inheritance dispute and that's why he became a hermit beyond the test yes will the fact that people hired fake hermits be on the test yeah i think so will the fact that simon just wanted to be left alone <laughs> and nothing would work be on the test yeah yeah and will the fact that there might be a large wave of Hikikomori after 2020 be on the test no we hide shit like that yeah it's which we shouldn't be and that's part of how this propagates so where can people find us we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we have a website. Our Instagram is at on the test pod. Our Twitter is at on the test pod. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash on the test pod. Our website is on the test We are on every major and a lot of minor podcast hosts. If you like us, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, get people to listen to us. Write some reviews. Yes, please write some reviews. Um, and like, and again, provide feedback. If we missed like an important work of the 90s or 2000s that you want to talk about, let us know about it. Yes, tweet at us, Facebook, uh, put some stuff on Facebook. Tell tell people, tell us, like, this is something that they left out because we weren't intentionally like, screw this movie or screw this actor or screw this type of hermit. It was, this is way of talking. Well, of course we don't want to screw this type of hermit. They're trying to avoid the horrible sex dreams from demons. Yes. And I true. guess... That's on true. that note. Hold on, hold on. Oh, okay. As a reminder, we're taking the next two weeks off. You can use this as an excellent time to binge us and get and get completely caught up. We are taking this couple weeks off to make things bigger and better for you. We will be back in two weeks. So until then, class, class dismissed. dismissed.